0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is in the first third of the Bible. It's part of what we call the historical books. There's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, books authored by Moses starting with Genesis. And then there are books that deal with the history of Israel. And 1 and 2 Samuel are the main portion of that that deal with the life of David. And we have reached the point in our study of 2 Samuel where we have arrived at chapter 10. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told, David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of beth and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maaka with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hedadezar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hedadezar, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless your word. That you would use it to teach us more of who you are. That you would tell us of the mighty deeds you have done. And that you would teach us what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Second 2 Samuel 10 is one of those Bible passages that we read over quickly. We realize we almost have to have this chapter, because otherwise we wouldn't know the context and the backdrop for the more important passages in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 with David and Bathsheba, because the events occurred during a war with Ammon. But when we come to a chapter like this, we wonder if there's really anything in it for us. Well, this chapter marks the high point in David's life and reign. Right after this, we begin to see a slide into sin and chaos. But there is. And so we take up this skim-over chapter... There is truth for us. Three truths. And so we're going to look this morning at these three biblical truths and what they mean for us today. First, we will see the kindness of the king. Second, we'll see the folly of the nations. And then, third, we will see the truth. Of faith, And in each of these instances, after we look at the truth, we will ask ourselves the question, what does this mean for us? Well, let's begin by looking at the kindness of the king. This chapter begins with David reaching out, reaching out to Hanan, the son of the deceased king of the Ammonites. And the chapter opens like a bit of a ping-pong match. You, You may remember that in the seventh chapter of this book, there was this wonderful passage, a great chapter about God's covenant with David. And then the next chapter was the eighth, in which we are told about David's wars and his victories over foreign countries. And then we shift back in chapter nine to an important gospel picture of Mephibosheth, and undeserved grace. And now we are back again to the filler kind of passage. The mundane about battles again. And as we pick it up, it actually begins in exactly the same manner. After this, just as chapter 8 began, after this, we are told, these following events take place. There is a war again. And it's even war with some of the same people, with the Syrians and Hadadezah. But there's also a link between this chapter and chapter 9. We read at the opening of this chapter that Nahash, the Ammonite king, has died. And David responds to that news with an interesting declaration. David says that he wants to deal loyally with Nahash's son, Hanan, because Nahash has dealt loyally with David. Now, why is this important? Why should we care about a millennia old treaty between nations on the other side of the earth? Well, we need to look closely at the text. This word is a word we saw last week. When David says, I will deal loyally, what he's saying is, I will give hesed. You remember that word, hesed? We saw it over and over again in chapter 9. It's a word that means kindness, mercy, covenant faithfulness. It describes God's covenantal love for his people and it showed the kindness and mercy that David showed to Mephibosheth. And so now, here, we are supposed to immediately think of chapter 9 and everything that was encapsulated in that of Mephibosheth and David's faithfulness and his mercy. As David wants to show that same kind of kindness and mercy now to Hanan. Now, we're not given the reasons for David's action. It's possible that David was aided by the king of Ammon during his flight from Saul. Maybe there was a treaty between Nahash and David during the time of the civil war with ish Some cynically think that David is merely trying to take advantage of the new king. They have thoughts very similar to the princes of Ammon, as we'll see in just a bit. And it could be that perhaps this compressed narrative... Is to blame. Have you ever noticed that the Bible sets its own priorities? We might want to know more about the affairs of nations, of important battles, and about history. But God takes more time to tell us about a conversation between David and a cripple than that. About a fireside chat between David and Nathan and a war. Well, in any event... What we know now is that David takes the initiative and that he wants to show hesed. He wants to show mercy, kindness, grace. And so he sends servants to honor and console the new king. Now, you have to understand here, David is reaching out when he does not have to reach out. There's nothing compelling him. He has no responsibility. He has no duty to do this. He is of his own initiative reaching out. And so the principle that we see here is one of kindness. David is, we might say, the kindness doing king. But more than that, David shows kindness not only to those who are within Israel, like Mephibosheth, but to those who are outside Israel. Like the Ammonites, he's not limited in his mercy and his kindness. So what does this mean? This is a good enough story. It puts David in a good light. It provides a contrast between the picture of David in the next two chapters and the David now. And here, David remembers God's kindness. He remembers God's covenant. And he wants to act in a way that's consistent with the way the Lord acts. Later on, we're going to see David driven by his passions, forgetting what God has done and sinning. But there is also something that we can learn directly from this text. David is acting with faithfulness. He does so because he is faithful, not because the recipients are worthy. In that way, David is emulating the Lord. We saw that in the case of Mephibosheth, but here David is even more bold. Hanan was outside of the covenant. There was no reason for David to show him such kindness, and especially no reason for David to initiate it. How do you react? ...to the world around you. Because the world is a cruel place. Those who don't believe in Jesus... ...can especially be hostile and unkind. Is your tendency to respond in turn to them? Or perhaps to shut yourself off from the world? Or to wish that they would get what they deserve? And quick. We have to remember... That our Hesed, showing God reached out to us when we were his enemies. And David shows us that this principle applies to the dealing of believers with unbelievers. Yes, mercy and kindness is for those who are a part of God's people. But it's also for those who are outside God's people. After all, that is how the Lord gathers his church. By sending us outside with mercy and kindness. God gives us an example of this in Matthew chapter 5. That the Lord sends rain on the just and the unjust. That he is good and kind to those who do not deserve it. Now, I'm told that we're due for a good bit of rain this week. And so I want to encourage you this week as it rains to look out your window... And to see if I'm correct that all of the houses on your street will get rained on. Not just certain ones, not just every other one, not just the ones who have a Christian fish in the window. No. God will send His rain on the just and the unjust. And Paul applies that principle to you and me, he tells the church in Galatia in chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now notice how Paul says this. Yes, we are to especially do good to those who are of the household of faith, who are our brothers and sisters in the church. But we are also to do good to everyone. Our kindness and our mercy should not stop at the church doors. They are to go out into our community think about the application of that in your life who do you know that you can show chesed to who is it that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ that you can deal loyally with so that they can see the beauty of mercy and grace look for an opportunity to show kindness and mercy to those who are around you. Well, the second thing that we see is the folly of the nations. And this shows us Hanan's response. And so often this describes why it's difficult for us to take the gospel out to people out in our community. Strangers. Folks who are not in the church. Because what we expect is to get rejected. Rejected. Have you ever had occasion after a tragedy, a a shooting, or a natural disaster, perhaps it was in person or perhaps on social media, when what you might do is you might say, my thoughts and prayers go out to the family or to the victims. And you're trying to just be as unobtrusive as you can to let people know you're praying for them, that, that it's important that you bring these things before the Lord, but you're not trying to be too overly specific. You're not telling them that, you know, they have to believe in Jesus right now and this wouldn't have happened to them if they would have believed in Jesus. You're just trying to be kind and merciful. And far too often today, that's met with anger as a response. I don't want your thoughts and prayers. Why don't you change the way you think? Why don't you do what I do? Why don't you believe what I believe? I don't want to hear anything about you. Sit down and shut up. That's the way the world And so we become fearful because we think we know the answer without even trying. But interestingly here, the text shows us exactly that. David reaches out to Hanan in an effort to show kindness. And the royal cabinet is sure that it is a trick. Well, just a brief aside here. Do you ever wonder about these state departments? How they always think they know the answer and they're messing things up? Over and over again we see this in the Bible. They give bad advice. We're going to see it again in Israel in just two generations and how the advisors will give Rehoboam, the king of Israel, bad advice. And so Hanan's advisors convince him that he needs to respond to David's kindness not by ignoring it, with a humiliating insult. We see this in verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Hanan wants to make sure that David knows that he is rejected. And so he shaves off half their beards, which was a great insult. It was actually against God's law. Israelite men were told not to trim their beards, but to let them grow. And then he publicly embarrasses them. Now you have to remember that men in David's day dressed with tunics or with gowns. They didn't wear pants and shirts. They wore flowing robes. So perhaps let me ask it this way. Ladies... If someone cut your dress off at the hips, would you go out about the town? Would you even go out in the neighborhood? I'll take it further. I don't think you should walk around the house like that. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And it's exactly designed to do this. Have you ever had someone deliberately try to embarrass you? Especially when you were trying to do something good? Well, that is the story of Jesus' life. Every time Jesus did a work of mercy or kindness, there was an enemy there to mock him, to scheme against him, or to insult him. So it should not surprise you if you experience that. But it doesn't end there with humiliation. You might think that Hanan would have learned from his foolishness as the word got back to David and he realized that David and the army were going to be coming for him. That he might have apologized. That he might have gone to David and sought forgiveness. Because David takes this very seriously. We see this in verse 5. He tells his messengers to remain at Jericho. Don't come back to court. Don't embarrass yourself. I don't want you to be humiliated. Stay until your beards grow back. What David is saying here is that what has been done is so bad that his men can't come back honorably to their lives right now. Now, the Ammonites do get this. You see this in verse 6. The Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. Now, this is a vivid, colorful biblical word. There is no two ways about this. There's no hesitancy. We don't need a term paper to describe this for us. The Ammonites say, we stink on ice in front of them. They hate us now. They're coming after us. And yet, rather than realizing their mistake and repenting of it, they add to it. They gather together mercenaries to fight David, almost as if they wanted war all along. You see, they didn't understand mercy. They didn't understand forgiveness. It doesn't even occur to them that they could be forgiven and reunited with David. Does that occur to you? When you're caught in a sin, when you have done something that you regret and that you know is wrong, Do you realize that the path forward is one of confession, acknowledgement, and seeking forgiveness? Or do you double down on wickedness? Do you try to hide theft with lying? Do you try to hide lying with violence? You see, that's what we see the Ammonites doing here. Now, again, what does this mean for us? We have a picture I think, that we can learn from. Ralph Davis puts it so well, he says, this is a regionalized version of Psalm 2. Now, what does that mean? Psalm 2 is about the nations who rage against the Lord and against His Christ. And when they should be kissing the Son before they perish, instead they take counsel together against Him. And this is so often the way of unbelievers. We look at this story and we want to shout, don't you know what's in your best interest? Do you really want to get flattened by David? Yet that is exactly what we see every day in our world. We know from God's word that rebellion against God leads to eternal death. And yet time after time we see people around us reject the gospel. The message of mercy, grace, and forgiveness because of their hard hearts and stubborn minds. We we are taught here that true wisdom is found in submitting to the Lord and His truth. Let me start for a moment with you. If you have not put yourself under the authority of King Jesus, you must do so now. If you have been hesitant about submitting, or you think you have a better plan, you must repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus has reached out to you in mercy, even today, in this text and in this sermon. Don't push Him away. God's mercy is wide. But you must receive it. Today is the day to believe. But there is also application for believers as we live in this world. Don't be surprised when others reject your efforts to tell them about Jesus. This is supremely disappointing to Christians, especially as we share the gospel with those who are closest to us our parents, our siblings our children, our close friends. But what we have to see is that the gospel always produces one of two responses. Either positive, like Mephibosheth, or negative, like Hanan. You can't control the response. You are not responsible for the outcome. God is. Paul himself, perhaps the greatest evangelist to ever walk the earth, tells us this principle in 2 Corinthians 2. He says the gospel is the smell of life to those who believe. But it is the smell of death to those who reject the gospel. And this is why we cannot grow weary in well-doing. Paul tells both the church in Galatia and the church in Thessalonica this. What we need is the grace of God to keep reaching out like David did, even when we expect that the response will be like Hanan's. Well, there is also a third truth for us to see, and it comes from an unlikely source. It's the truth of the trust of faith. And the context is the resulting war that comes about from the mistreatment of David's messengers. Canaan goes out and gets some hired guns and he prepares for war. Now, this does not frighten David. David has faced far worse than this. And David trusts the Lord. And so David gathers his troops and he sends two generals who are familiar to us by this time, Joab and his brother Abishai, to go up and to fight this war. Now, what do we know exactly about Joab? Joab is not exactly a model citizen. He's not the kind of guy you ask to lead the prayer meeting. He is the lookout for number one kind of guy. The resentful kind of guy. The hard as nail soldier. Do you remember how he killed Abner? When Abner thought there was peace, Joab came up to him and stabbed him in the stomach and left him to die. And later on, Joab's going to do almost the exact same thing to another general, a man named Amasa, who is Absalom's commander. Joab, in short, is not known for his restrained piety. But as the armies are set apart against each other, Joab sees that there is danger here in verse 9. The battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear. And so Joab then formulates a plan. After all, he is a general. And he tells Abishai, I will take the troops and face the Syrians. And you take these troops and you face the Ammonites. And if I'm in trouble, you come and relieve me. And if you're in trouble, I'll go and relieve you. And he says, we need to be courageous. We need to play the man, the Hebrew says. But then Joab does something else. He makes this wonderful theological statement of faith. We see it in verse 12. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now at first glance, we find this hard to believe that it comes out of Joab's mouth. We want to say along with Hanan's advisors, Really? Is this really what you mean? Can we trust Joab to be our theological professor? Or to be our Sunday school teacher? And yet, this is the only place in this chapter where the Lord is actually mentioned. And so the question is, what is the writer trying to tell us through this statement of Joab, once again we ask, what does this mean? Well, we need to know first that the truth of God certainly can come from odd sources. Balaam's donkey, for one. Gamaliel the Pharisee, for another. And even the Roman centurion who was standing at the cross as Jesus was being crucified said, surely this was the Son of God. Now what we see here is not foxhole religion. Now if you're not familiar with that term, what that means is it's when people get religious and they immediately begin to pray harder than they've ever prayed when they see real danger in front of them. People who never seek to pray, ever. When a hurricane's bearing down on them, they're on their knees. Or when they get a bad medical report from the doctor, Lord, if you just get me through this, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll serve you here, and I'll serve you there. And the reason it's not foxhole religion is as soon as the time and trouble passes, so does their fervor. No, what this statement here tells us is how we can understand how faith works. Faith is not trusting God to make everything in our lives easy, perfect, and right. Faith is not being certain about the outcome of every event. Joab doesn't know how this battle is going to come out. He could very well lose this battle, and God would still be God. And we see that in the way that this phrase is translated. Some translations like ours make it a wish. May the Lord do what seems good to Him. Other translations make it a declaration. God will do what is good to Him. But they mean the same thing. Because what is right to God may be a victory. Or it may not. We don't have specific promises about each aspect of our lives God has not promised you a great job or a wonderful marriage or a healthy family now we can and should pray to the Lord about each of these things but our faith is not in those events no instead God has given us promises that will never fail even in the middle of these trials and struggles So in Hebrews chapter 13, the Lord tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But that doesn't mean we won't have heart-wrenching experiences or persecution or loss. No, what it means is is that the Lord will never leave us no matter what happens to us in this life. Faith is is not the sure knowledge that everything will happen like we want it to. Here's a better definition of faith. Faith is leaving our uncertainties in the hand of God. What we see here is that Joab was not certain about the battle, but he was certain about God. And this helps us as we face discouragement, and trials. Remember that the ark was lost in battle. That the exile happened. That Paul was shipwrecked. That the apostles were martyred. Bad things are going to happen to you. But your faith allows you to cling to the Lord. So we have three valuable truths in this skimmable chapter. Three things God wants us to see and live in light of. The Lord is calling you today to show mercy and grace to others. To bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates. And know that the response may be, indeed often is, rejection. But that is not your problem. That's for the Lord to deal with. Hold on tight to the Lord. Your faith is what will give you light in darkness. Know that even when life is not going as you wish it would, the Lord is still God. And He is your God. Let's pray.